Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I swear, that music just makes me want to come out and kick things <laughs> and, like, throw chairs. Uh, it is, like, way too pump up music. So if you're an athlete and you would like access to that song, before you step on any kind of field, court, or pitch, just let me know. I'll gladly share that with you because I'm like, yeah, I'm fired up. Yeah, I should. Don't even know what I'm doing. I should kick something. Okay, so <laughs> um, thank you for being here today. My name is Chris. I am crazy, and um, today we are going to continue a series that we kicked off last week called No Offense, and this idea that we live in a culture, um, this whole series really is about this simple um, tension that I think we all can feel to some degree in varying degrees of our life, that we live in what appears to be an age of outrage, and so how do we step out of the rage that so kind of defines the age we live in. And over the course of three weeks, that's what we want to look at, is how do we navigate this age of outrage that marks our social media feeds, that marks the news feeds that come across our televisions, and that potentially the undercurrent that's present in many conversations where there are certain words and certain topics you just don't want to talk about because you just don't know where people stand. And to kind of continue on last week, where we essentially said um, that we can be peacemakers, not peace takers, and that's what we looked at last week. So if you're new to Encounter Church, you can find that in the app that we have at EncounterChurch.com forward slash app. Um, we have all our previous messages present there um, to kind of catch up. But each one of these messages are built independent. So if you didn't listen to last week, you're not going to miss anything this week. But I want to continue this conversation and give us the tools and the knowledge base to be able to navigate this age of outrage where we aren't always sure what to do, what to say, or how to respond. So to take you on the journey for today, I want to start by having a moment of really high-class um, art admiration. So this um, June of this past year, a famous art artist um, kind of made global headlines by selling a piece of art that ultimately ended up going for about $18,000 in an auction. Now I'm really excited because I was able to pull some strings and I was actually able to get this artwork for us this morning. I don't know if you noticed it when you came in. It's pretty large and obtrusive. If you didn't notice it, I don't really know how you didn't not notice it. Um, it was about a five foot by five foot statue. It was really large. It was right in the center of the lobby when you walked in. But just in case you missed it, I have a picture of it here on the screen. Because this statue went for $18,000 this summer in Italy. This artist has actually sold a few of these statues. And what he likes to describe them as is large boxes of energy. You can see it, right? There it is, right here. It's clear as day. It's a large box of energy. And this made global headlines. This small little art gallery with this Italian artist made headlines all around the nation because someone paid $18,000 for that. Now, here's the good news. I don't, even, I don't just have that artwork out there. I've actually been dabbling in my own sculpturing, and I've created my own sculpture that has been on the stage the entire time. And I'm selling it today for half of the price of what this guy sold his. Mine looks better. It's twice as big. And I will bring it to your house and install it for free for $9,000. So feel free to talk to me after if we want to set up some type of auction. 
Right? This is a real story. I, I'm not making this up. This is not The Onion. This is not satire. Someone wrote a check for $18,000 and bought an invisible statue. And in some ways, I think this is an extreme metaphor for the culture we currently live in. That's insanity. Okay? And I would love to speak to the person who paid $18,000 for that because I have some really good places for them to invest their money that's going to bring some actual returns. I mean, imagine he wakes up one day and he decides it's been stolen. Like, how do you even report that to the police? I need to report a robbery. My statue was stolen, the one I paid $18,000 for. Like, this is ridiculous. If you're an insurance agent, how do you even cover that? Well, sir, it's clearly still right here. No one took it from you, right? I mean, like, this is ridiculous. But this is a metaphor in so many ways, not just because this is ridiculous, but because of the fact that you and I now know about this moment. Uh, Fifty years ago, an Italian artist selling anything on the other side of the world would not have been something that you and I would have instantly had, a, had an even ability to know about. You see, we live in an unprecedented time in human history. There has never been a point in human history where humans had had more access to information than we currently have now. When I prepare a message, I recognize that at any point in time, you are Googling and fact-checking me. I recognize at any given point in time, if I have a question, I don't have to, like, go to a library and learn how to use the card catalog and figure out who an expert is and then pull the actual book, read the actual book, then formulate an opinion. I can Google any of life's questions and instantly have all the answers and advertisements right in front of me. I mean... If you're parenting in this generation and you grew up in the previous one, you see this regularly. I never knew what my friends were doing. I never lived with FOMO because I just didn't know no, what they were doing. But this generation, even as it just came out this week, right, well, Washington Post was publishing some internal documents that Facebook had been doing in the research where they recognized that their own products lead to kind of disintegrating mental illness within certain populations. Why? Because you and I never had access to that information. And in some ways, this is a hard message for me to speak, and I almost wanted to give you the disclaimer, this will probably be the worst message you ever hear, because this thing is so near and dear to my heart. Because I recognize, as a parent, I'm looking at my nine-year-old, and I'm like, how in the world do I prepare her for this world. I mean, when my mom, you know, went to bed at night, she didn't have to worry about what could come into my room. They had to break open a window and crawl through. There were so many barriers to getting into my bedroom, but I lay at wake at night and realized if my daughter has any kind of electronic device, I don't control what comes into her room anymore. So this is deeply personal to me because I've been wrestling with this internal tension for a long time. It's actually one of the things that guides my parenting style. It's one of the reasons that every single night my daughter um, may not know a lot of different things, but she knows the book of Proverbs. 
because I've become absolutely convinced that there is a solution and an answer and an antidote to living in the information age. And while it is not directly relevant to how do we live a life of no offense, it is the operating system that has to be present if we're going to operate in this world. Because the answer is not this. As great as this would be to just, you know, we could all commit to wearing a cone and not looking down at our phone. Because in some ways, if historians ever look back on this moment, the greatest invention and the greatest demise of human history might be the smartphone. Simultaneously. That the internet didn't just accelerate the best of humanity, it accelerated the worst too. It made an ability for us to gather around good things. It, it's given us the ability through this pandemic for people to be a part of the church, even as they're not part of this physical gathering right now. But it's also allowed kind of factions and fractions of people to come together around horrible and hateful ideas. It's, it's allowed, I mean, in the old days, if you wanted to be a dictator or a tyrant or a fascist, you actually had to get people in a room together and, and kind of slowly warm them up. Like, it's terrifying to think about what would a Hitler of today actually look like. And imagine the power Hitler would have had had he been alive today. I, I, like, this is, why I say, this is not the best message you're ever going to hear from me because this is where my brain lives. It's because I think the most terrifying thing that is the thing that hasn't happened yet. Where you imagine, what if there was a Hitler who had access to the World Wide Web? And not just the world he lived in. This thing should have a toxic radioactive label slapped on it. I mean, it's been one of the things that this past year has really brought to the surface. See, I think the age of information initially was celebrated as one of the greatest kind of breakthroughs of human beings. And I think there was a sense that, oh, if we just have enough information and we make information available to everyone, then the world will finally be a better place. But if information was all we needed to make the world a better place, then I think we've proven that that doesn't work alone. Information by itself, in the hands of everyone, doesn't change the life for the better of anyone. When we actually sit back and we say, well, what is it produced in our own lives as we're this guinea pig of this new generation who has access? I'm not knocking information. I love it. I'm, my wife will tell you, if we watch something, I'm over there as I'm watching, looking up, Googling. Like I'm like, did you know that this actor was in this movie? Or did you know that this moment and this, this part of history was actually real, but it didn't say this? They actually said this? Like I'm a horrible person to watch anything with. Because I'm just like, oh, this is so fascinating. Like, I, I just have ideas all the time popping in my head that I'm curious about. And I'm like, oh, da, da, da. Like, I love that I get to live here. But I'm afraid that if I'm not careful that in my own household, I could be giving my kids away to something that could end up taking their life away. So what do we do? Can't do this, though this would be awesome. So how do we kind of navigate what's the antidote? And I think there is one. It's not an easy one. It's more than a message, but it's, it's conceptually 
what guides how I even parent in this moment. Because here's what I know. While it's unprecedented in human history for all of us to have to live in this age of information whose current typically takes us further away from each other into darker and deeper waters if we're not careful. There isn't completely unprecedentedness in this thing. See, for the average human, it's completely unprecedented. But there was a small group of people throughout human history who had to navigate living in their own age of information and the overload it created. They were called kings and queens. You see, if you just go back 200 years ago, you and I, that uh, it is possible if you have a six-year-old, your six- or seven-year-old has more fundamental working knowledge of the world than a grown-up in the 17 or 1600s. Your kids, if your kid knows what a virus is, that was not common knowledge 200 years ago. It's not even a fact. It was barely 100 years old that we even knew viruses existed. And so I want to take you to a passage today written by a king to a future king because those people in those time periods throughout human history were the only ones who had to live with information overload because they had to make judgments, they had to understand, they had to make stat decisions, they had the weight of the world in front of them, no matter how big or small that world actually was. And we have the privilege, because we get to read the Bible, that we have the words of the wisest king who had ever lived, giving intentional advice to the future king of the nation, which I think is better than what Google can give you. Because in an age of information, the most important thing now is wisdom. And wisdom is something you can't Google. But fortunately for us, God gave us wisdom long before we ever stepped in to the age of information. And we call that book the book of Proverbs, which was a parenting book, all designed to prepare his children for the wisdom that they would need to lead in their world. And so I want to take you to a passage today where Solomon, who's one of the wisest men who've ever lived, is intentionally talking to his son and daughters about how to navigate decision-making, how to navigate, navigate the information age. And he says these words. He says, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. This is a portion from Proverbs 18, verse 17. So he's giving his son and his daughters this piece of wisdom, this very important piece of wisdom, that on the surface we read it and we don't see how profound or helpful it actually is because we're inundated with information. And so to help you understand and appreciate I want to give you a pop test, right? Because you haven't had one in a while, and your kids, they judge you because of it. So question one, a bat and a ball cost $1.10 in total. The bat cost a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Do not cheat. Do not look at someone else's answers, and do not ask your child. All right, number two. If it takes five machines five minutes to make five widgets, how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? And three, in a lake there's a patch of lily pads every day. The patch doubles in size. If it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake, how long would it take for the patch to cover half of the lake? All right, you got it? Now, some of you are smiling because you know what this is, and you got all three of these answers right, and you feel really, you got a lot of confidence right now, okay? 
for the rest of us, I'm about to show you the answers, and you're not going to feel very confident. So the, the question one, the answer is a dollar and five cents. Not a dollar and ten cents. It's a trick, right? If you think through it, a dollar and five cents is actually right. Some of you wanted to argue with me when you first saw a dollar and five cents because you're like, no, it's a dollar and ten cents. Then you're like, no, hold up. Then it'd be a dollar and twenty. JK. Okay, a dollar and five. Five minutes is how long it would take. And question three, 47 days. Now, most likely, statistically speaking, um, no one in this room got them all right unless you saw it. There's like a 99% chance that all of us missed all three of them if this is the first time you saw it. Some of the sharpest minds in America score the average of about 1.35 answers right on this test when they take it. This is called a CRT. The purpose of this test was really to expose something about the human mind that Solomon is doing in this passage, which is our tendency to snap judgments, our tendency to quick decision-making, oftentimes is detrimental, not helpful. And if you're living in an information age, like the king was in that time, when he's constantly having to assess information and make a decision, now we're all kings and queens in some way, living in a world of the information overload we're in, that our tendency that we often forget is what that test exposes and what Solomon said to his children almost 3,000 years ago when he says, you know what, I want you to be wise because the first time you hear a case, the first person who speaks will seem to be right. Now, actually, Solomon doesn't write this in English. That's a fairly new language. He's writing it in the language of his day, which is Hebrew, and this actually doesn't capture the weightiness of the words that Solomon is saying to his children. What he's actually saying isn't the first to speak seems right. It's actually heavier than that. He's emphatic. He says the first one, right. Like done. Decision made. Clear. Righteous. That's the decision you should do. He, he removes all the ambiguity that's present in this English sentence. He makes the point that the first person who speaks, you're going to be convinced they're right. And that this is a really intentional thing that Solomon's trying to impart to his children, the same thing that you felt for a moment when you took that CRT test, which is the feeling that you might be wrong. We, as, a, as adults, somewhere along the line, started to believe that being wrong made us wrong. That you could be wrong about a decision, and we, we, we turned that into a label about who we are. And we avoid wrong. But think about it, when you were a child, being wrong was how you made it through the world, right? You learned so much by being like, oh, that's wrong. Oh, shouldn't do that. Oh, that shouldn't. Okay, I won't touch the hot stove anymore. Like, wrong was a teaching tool that helped us. You recognized you could be wrong. I mean, the whole process of walking is through falling and getting back up. But somewhere along the line, from kid to adult, we started to have an allergy to admitting we're wrong. Right? Here's another test. You don't have to say this one out loud. And if you have a spouse sitting beside you, I'm sorry. They'll be honest with you. When's the last time you admitted you were wrong? When's the last time you've said the phrase, I was wrong? Maybe you did it just recently. Great. But you and I, something inside of us, doesn't hesitate to say, I was right about that. But something inside of us has a lot of hesitancy 
about being just as kind of like aggressive about saying, I was, I was so wrong on that. We're afraid of being wrong. And what happens is that we fall into the ditch of not questioning ourselves, not having what the Bible would call humility to recognize we potentially could be wrong. This is embedded in this passage. He's trying to teach his sons and daughters, look, just because it feels right doesn't mean it's right. And you have to have enough humility to understand you might be wrong about the decision that's starting to form so that you can be open to hear another perspective in it. This humility, this awareness that I might be wrong is essential. If you're like, okay, I want to be wise, I want to know how to navigate wisdom, the first step is what we see here, what you felt a few minutes ago with that CRT test, that you might be wrong. In fact, just learning how to say that phrase before you say something can save you a lot of hurt in the long run. Like, hey, I might be wrong on this. Here's my thoughts. What do you think? But most of us, somewhere along the line, started to lean more on our confidence about feeling right than our competence about knowing it's right. We confuse it. Right? And I see this play out in my house. I have a nine-year-old who's going on 16 or 39. I'm not sure which age. And one of her phrases recently is, I know, Daddy. Daddy, I know. Daddy. I know that. You knew that? You knew quantum mechanics? You already know all about the world? I mean, no, I already know that, Dad. Right? I mean, somewhere in that age group, and I remember where I used to think I knew everything. Psychologists have kind of created a term for that called Dunning-Kruger effect. Right? It's the feeling you have when you watch a football game and you're screaming at the television because he's a moron for what the play he just ran. Why? Because you clearly know what it's like to be on the center of an NFL football field with 60 or 70 or 80,000 people making that much money with that much pressure with all the decades of history and training. You clearly know what that's like. So you obviously know what he should or should not have done. That Dunning-Kruger effect. It's, we feel that sometimes when we sit in the chair in a meeting and our boss makes a decision. Now, sometimes our bosses make dumb decisions. But sometimes our bosses are making good decisions, but we think they're dumb because we're being armchair quarterbacks. We're like, well, if he knew or if she had a clue. And this tendency to be more confident than competent in our ability to make decisions gets us in trouble. And Solomon knows that this will derail their kingship. In fact, Solomon's son will not listen to the advice that's present in this passage And about 40 years after this sentence is uttered to his young son who takes control of the nation, his son will make a mistake in decision-making, and the nation will fall into civil war. He wasn't wrong for understanding the weight of this. And his understanding of how to navigate the age of information almost 2,600 years ago is actually a gift to us because it's what we need, too. So, first step of fostering wisdom is knowing that you might be wrong and having an ability to recognize that. The other thing is what he says in the second half when he says, until someone comes forward 
and cross-examines, right? He's telling them, I want you to delay the decision until you dig into the information. The tendency present in the first part is for us to react. And what he's actually calling his sons and daughters to is to respond by pursuing truth, not reacting to what they feel is truth. Right? It's This is our default. This is what you and I do every single day of our life. And he's saying you've got to make a decision to make sure you delay the decision you're making until you have more information. So when someone's like, what do you think about this? The tendency for most of us is to have an opinion, a strongly felt opinion, about a weekly research topic. Right? It's like, if we're being honest, hey, what's your, what's your opinion on uh, UFOs? Well, to be honest, I know nothing about UFOs. I've never researched UFOs. I don't even know what all the governments of the world are currently flying as top-secret military devices. But you know what? I feel strongly they're clearly aliens on other planets and that they're currently flying around our nation and our globe watching us, right? Like, we form these strong opinions when we haven't done research, when we haven't looked into it. Someone that we think says something really compelling or really emotionally moves us, and we repost, we retreat, we share their piece of information, and we didn't for a second fact check it. Didn't for a second say, well, you know what, I should look into that. And what happens is because everyone's doing it, oftentimes no one has this kind of, you don't have people being like, well, you know, you're a moron. Although we now are in an age where if you put something up, you will have somebody post something on your Facebook telling you you're a moron and posting their kind of version of the argument. And then it devolves into this, like, you know, war on your Facebook page. But we could save a lot of heartache and a lot of arguments just by being able to give ourselves permission. I know I might be wrong, so maybe I should look into this to make sure I'm right. So people will sometimes ask me, like, hey, what's your opinion? I'm like, I don't know. And what's your opinion on this bill? I don't know. I haven't read that bill. Have you read that bill? I'm probably sure the people who wrote that bill didn't even read that bill. So, yeah, I don't know. But if I find myself with three hours to read some legislative bill, not somebody's opinion about a skimming of a bill that maybe they did, then I'll give you my opinion. Which means that sometimes I'm a really boring person to talk about or talk to in certain parties because I don't. I don't have an opinion about the Patriots season because I don't know anything about the quarterback and the receivers and the offense. I don't have that information, so I don't feel like I can talk about it. And, I, and it's one of those things that I've come to terms with because this wisdom thing is so important to me in my household that I don't have permission to talk about things that I don't understand. And by saying, even, even if you just say that out loud, hey, I haven't researched this, so anything I say is probably dumb. So I just want to give you that caveat because you keep asking me, so I'm going to say some stuff, and it's probably all dumb. Um, and so this idea of being aware, you could be wrong, and then instead of responding, fact-checking, clarifying, digging in, this oftentimes is how you and I protect ourselves 
from arguments, debates. Because embedded in this is realization that this seems right, but that doesn't mean it's right. I need to see the other side. So I don't trust what seems to be right until I see and I dig into what the other side sees. And this helps keep and protect you and I. And this is the path of wisdom. It's a harder path. In an information age where there's constantly things flowing at you, you probably recognize internally what I already recognize too, which is you don't have time to fact check everything. Do you? you? If you just take what's streaming on your news right now, you don't even have the capacity to do that. Which means that sometimes there's some things I just don't know about the world. And it and does it make me ignorant? Yes. It does. But I recognize my ignorance. And if I'm pushed to talk about something I'm ignorant about, I say, this is something I don't really know about. And, but if this is an area of expertise for you, I'd love for you to talk about it so I can learn more about it. And this is one of those things that, again, go back to the first part. I might be wrong. And so if you have an awareness that the world is bigger than what our brains can fully grab hold of, then we don't have to feel like we understand the world. Like, let's just be real. A bat sneezed in China like two years ago, and our world has shut down. Like that is the complexity of the world we live in. And now some of you are thinking, that was not a bat sneezing. That was, an, uh, you know, laboratory. And a, I don't know. But you don't either. And that's the reality. We live in an uncertain, chaotic, crazy-to-understand world. And wisdom doesn't try to put the world in nice little tiny, completely solvable black and white boxes because what happens is that wisdom recognizes the complexity of the world. But if not, we walk through our day and everything that we encounter, you're like, oh, you're a Democrat, you think this. You're a Republican, you, you think this. And we just start sorting and sifting because we don't have the wisdom and the nuance to understand and to ask questions and to, to engage and to dialogue. Like, this is hard work. And this is something, as a parent, I am constantly obsessing with trying to figure out how do I teach my daughter and my son how to navigate a world that is so complex, so interconnected, and so overwhelming with information that they don't drown in it, that they somehow are able to swim, up, swim upstream. That's why I said this message was going to be the worst message I ever spoke, because I can't tell you everything you need to know about wisdom. God literally wrote a book about it called Proverbs. It's why I read it every single day. It's why every single day, I, when the first prayers that I pray at the beginning of my day, in the middle of my day, at the end of the day, when I'm having a conversation with my wife and I don't know how to respond, when I'm having a conversation with my kids and I don't know how to respond, when I'm having a conversation with somebody at the church and I don't know how to respond, I'm constantly, God, give me wisdom. God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. I'm passionately pursuing that in how I pray. And then I'm always taking a step back and saying, you know what, that feels right, but you know, I, know, I need to look into that. I need to fact check that. 
And that ultimately, I think if you and I take this posture, what ultimately starts to happen is it puts us in a place where we can start to elevate above this age of outrage we live in. Because we can be conscious of the things that we don't really have strongly researched opinions on. And so we're careful not to have strongly felt opinions about them. And then in the process of doing this, I think it actually starts to earn credibility. I mean, when was the last time you said you were wrong? When's the last time you heard a politician say they were wrong? When's the last time you heard your boss say they're wrong? Do you have a parent? When's the last time you've heard your parents say they were wrong? My, my daughter heard me say that this week because I was wrong about something. And I had to say, Ella, I'm so sorry, sweetie. Daddy was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. But I think over the long term, where you and I are so afraid it's going to affect our stock and our value, that what it actually does in the, the grand scheme of the storyline of our life is it actually raises our credibility and it raises people's respect of us. I came across this letter um, this week. This was a letter. It's kind of blurry. It was written by Abraham Lincoln to Ulysses S. Grant. Grant had, had devised a military strategy, which at the time he was absolutely convinced was essential to winning the Civil War. And it was the Battle of Vicksburg. Vicksburg was um, this kind of city along the Mississippi River. And in, in a sense, if you controlled Vicksburg, you controlled the Mississippi River, which was an essential kind of logistics channel for the nation at the time. So Grant wanted to push in and take Vicksburg. Well, Lincoln had strong opinions about it. Lincoln said, I never had any faith except the general hope that you knew better than I. Abraham Lincoln is writing this to his general. <laughs> I never had any faith except the general hope that you knew better than I. That the Yazoo Pass expedition and the like could succeed. When you got below and took Port Gibson, Grand Gulf, and the vicinity, I thought you should go down the river and join General Banks. And when you turned northward, east of the Big Black, I feared it was a mistake. I now wish to make a personal acknowledgement that you were right and I was wrong. That's incredible. Abraham Lincoln wrote a public letter to Grant acknowledging he made a mistake. The commander-in-chief telling his great general he was wrong and allowed it to be published in the newspapers for all of America to read. But I'm convinced that what we see in this sentence from that letter is one of the reasons that Abraham Lincoln navigated this country through one of the darkest moments he had. He had humility. And I just think that Christians, more than any other people on planet Earth, should be able to embody this type of humility. And this is why what you see in this passage is so relevant, because Solomon is saying this to his son. As a king with decades of experience, Solomon was literally Google before Google. People would travel from all over the world to get his advice on situations and issues they were dealing with. He was globally known for his wisdom. He was Google. And yet, his self-awareness and humility would lead him to make sure his son understood this is not a, this is not a 
trial and struggle you will have at the beginning of your kingship. This is a struggle you will have through your entire kingship. And he's calling him and this entire book to, to be wise, which is an actual genius thing because he's calling his son to not identify with being right. He's not trying to make his son identify and to form an opinion that the idea is connected to his identity. He's making his son recognize that if you're going to be the king, that the, I, the chief identity of the king besides your connection to God is that you're wise. And wise people admit when they're wrong. Wise people are aware they could be wrong. Wise people adjust their opinions based on the facts they see, not the feelings they felt. But that's what wise people do. Because Solomon understood something 2,600 plus years before you and I, ex- like, we live in a day and age where people's ideas have become their identity. Right? So if someone holds a view because it's the Republican, so here's my position, and my position is not just a position, it's, it's who I am as a person. I don't know about you, but it's really hard to have an argument around identity. It's easier to have a dialogue around an idea. But our culture has reduced everything to identity and who we are and what we view. I'm a Republican, so of course this is what my opinion is. I'm a Democrat, of course this is what my opinion is. Identity is a ditch that prevents us from being able to move down the road of wisdom unless our identity is tied to something that can get us out of that ditch. And wisdom does. Wisdom gives us an ability to say, I might be wrong. So I'm committed to the the pursuit of wisdom, not to my position. And that the reason I think Christians more than anyone else should be able to embody this is that Christians are people. So you're not born a Christian, right? Your, Your family being a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Um. You know, it's like going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to Fenway makes you a Red Sox player, right? Being a Christian is a choice you make. And to really synthesize all of Christian theology down to like some very like simple statements, it's a choice you made at the foot of the cross, figuratively, recognizing who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, And what the implications are for you because of that. So if I'm a Christian, it means that I recognize that I have intentionally done things that were wrong. My arrogance, my pride, my lies, my lust, my greed, my hatred, all of those things I chose to do. They weren't Excel document mistakes. They weren't, you know, stuff that grammar and spell check could have fixed. They were things I woke up premeditatedly planning to do wrong to the degree that literally I was wrong. And that for me, to be a Christian in light of what Scripture says as that response is to recognize, to go to the cross and say, God, you were right, I was wrong, here's all the things I've done wrong. And in that process of confessing in humility my wrongness to the only right one, he gives me his rightness in response. And so... You and I, if you are a Christian, you are absolutely, 100%, positively set free 
from having to be right all the time. Because the only one who was right has put his rightness over you. And so when I meet Christians who are arrogant, who are closed-minded, who live with this thing around that's so judgmental of all these other sides, I'm like, you are disconnected from the, the very foundation of the cross, which is a confession that you and I were wrong. And we did it on purpose against God and against others. I don't have a problem admitting that I'm selfish sometimes because God already knows I'm selfish, and I've already told him. And most likely the people around me already figured it out too. I think there's something beautiful about the Christian faith and that the Christians who live out that faith are the only people who really are truly free to not have to be right. Because we recognize our confidence isn't our ability to know the right thing and put it on our Facebook wall and show the world how stupid they are because they believe this about COVID-19 or they don't believe this about the vaccine or they do believe this about certain politics, that my confidence is his rightness over me. And my humility is rooted in the wrongness that he and I both very much well know in my life. And I just want to give you permission. Didn't give you a message that was helpful or hopeful as much as I wanted it to be. But I wanted to give you a different path. That in this age of information overload, where it's easy in this age current to push us further and further apart into deeper and darker, more entrenched waters, that you and I would get in the boat of wisdom, powered by the humility of recognizing who we are before the sight of God, and to allow that engine of being willing to not just react to what we feel is right, but to respond in diligence to seek what is right, to take us upstream, not downstream, into the dark alleyways that the information age takes us. And in the process of doing so, I think you and I can truly start to live a life that goes beyond no offense. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the wisdom that you give in your word for the words that guide us and lead us and help us to know. Father, I pray for all of us on site, online today, for those joining us, listening to my voice right now through the podcast, that you would help us to become people who daily ask you for wisdom. That we would be people who recognize, who hesitate before we just blindly repost and reshare, that we would be people who would think deeply, that we would go beyond the surface because our confidence would be in you and that that humility would flow into every area of our lives. God, that you would allow that wisdom to permeate our relationships, romantic, or permeate our relationships at work, permeate our relationships with those that we lead and with those who we're being led by. That wisdom would be the, the mark of our lives. And that humility and the words, I am wrong, I was wrong, I am so sorry, would not be exceptions. That we would be people who would, whose lives would be so differently and distinctly lived that when someone reads a letter from us, that people just are like, oh, yeah, that's who they are. 
Help us to live out that extraordinary life of wisdom. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for allowing me to bring a really bad message, okay? Um, I'm usually very succinct and very like, this is it. This is the point I want to make. And today I was like, man, I've just been really burdened by this whole 18 months of watching what's been happening. And I was like, there's a better way. And this is what I'm obsessing with as a parent. So I'm just going to bring it on stage as a pastor. And if you didn't like it, you can blame my wife because she was like, Chris, I think people will appreciate getting that different side of you. So if you don't, please write a letter to her. And um, I can tell her I was right, all right? So that would be awesome. So I have to say I'm wrong all the time. So um, today <laughs> we're going to close out with a song. And um, it's a song that just kind of, um, I think, puts a bow on what we discussed today, a song and a declaration. Uh, one of the things, I'm, I'm a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Um, this idea that because of who he is, that if we've responded to who Jesus is and what he's done for us in faith and in trust, then we are a child of God, and that gives us so much freedom and confidence. And that we stop having to prove ourselves. We start, we stop having to, like, trying to climb up mountains to, to get value and significance. That we can live with humility and a confidence that comes from being his son and daughter. And so the, the band's going to lead us and sing us, sing to us and maybe... Part of your act of response today is to sing with them with these songs to, that just kind of punctuates. God, I want to be a person who walks in wisdom. And, um, and then afterwards, Dallas will be up just to kind of close us out for the day. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being a part of this church. Even as I was walking up today, I got a, 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 a prayer request. And there's just a lot of really hurting people right now. And it's not because of COVID, it's just because life. And because of you, because of people who call this church home, because of your generosity, we get to step into those moments with them and say, hey, we're praying for you, but, you know, that literally the church, you pay me to be you with the time you don't have. But I get to sit and weep with people who've lost a loved one. I get to walk with someone going through an addiction. I get to journey with a family who's trying to navigate a tragedy, that all of that is possible. That when I walk into those rooms, when I sit down with someone who's dying, it's you coming in with me because of your generosity. And thank you. Thank you because of that, we get to do what we get to do as a church collectively. Something that we could never do as individuals. So if you want to be a part of that generosity movement, because I do believe that we give to God through a church. We don't give to the church. We're giving to him through the church. But if you want to be a part of that generosity movement, obviously in the midst of COVID, we're not passing baskets. That's probably not the best idea that we could have right now. Um, but if you want to give, you can do it through the app. You can go through encounterchurch.com forward slash give. Or you can even swing by the glass thing and people just kind of hand me an envelope and I stick it in the lockbox for our accountant to get out. Um, but... We want to give you that opportunity to be a part of the generosity movement that God's doing. We just aren't using baskets right now as the way of moving forward. So whether through the app, through the website, counterchurch.com forward slash give, or through just kind of in an envelope that we can hand you on the way out, I want to thank you for being here. So I want to invite you to stand. Our team's going to lead us, Dallas, to close us out. And I look forward to seeing you back here next week as we close out the series of